Welcome to A Good Service on All Other Lines, a story and song podcast written by David Head and Matt Glover. I'm David Head, and this is Matt Glover. Hello. And that's hopefully the only time you'll be hearing him speak. This is a narrative show told in five parts. Welcome to part one. Welcome aboard this D&M rail service. We'll be stopping at hubris, embarrassment and failure. Passengers seeking competence, amusement or enjoyment are advised to try an alternative route. Please report any unattended emotional baggage to the conductor. This show is now ready to depart. The Story of Louise Marigold Part 1 It's Never Too Late Louise Marigold was going to be too late, she could tell. In her rush, she'd accidentally chosen a broken escalator and was now jogging up it into Marlebone train station. This final half-hour sprint served as the exclamation mark to the end of a horrendous journey and as an unsubtle metaphor for the thematic arc of her narrative. Short of breath, dignity and time, she stumbled over the final steps and threw herself towards the tube barriers. Seek assistance, it flashed. She ignored the even less subtle foreshadowing. Every second counted now. Louise's journey had confirmed a theory of hers regarding the tube, that each line's colour was a reflection of its character. So, for example, the district line was a forest green, since it passed through delightful leafy suburbs like Chiswick and Richmond. The Piccadilly line was a velvet blue because it passed alongside the royal abode of Buckingham Palace, where, obviously, the interiors were rife with such decadent fabric. The northern line was black because it represented the death of hope, and travelling on it was a waking nightmare full of unspeakable horrors and misery. And, of course, the Bakerloo line, the line that she had just travelled on to reach Marlebone, was brown because it was shit. Utter shit. She'd had to wait six minutes for a tube, which, even this late at night, was clearly unacceptable, bordering on farce. And Louise was a very patient sort. She prided herself on not being a whiny London wanker, the sort who expect the tube to arrive instantly, drink flat whites, and have the arrogance to record a live show as a podcast without giving it due consideration and rewriting just one single joke. The carriage had been fairly quiet given the late hour, but still disproportionately hot and so Louise had emerged covered with a light sheen of an ambiguous sweat with the sneaking suspicion that not all of the moisture clinging to her like an unwelcome dance partner actually belonged to her. It was in this damp and grumpy state that she finally pushed her way into the station proper, only to find that Marlebone was also a disappointment to her. How the hell had this tiny gateway to the Cotswolds become a Monopoly station? Now, obviously it wasn't the worst of the Monopoly stations, That was Fenchurch Street, because there's little to no evidence it actually exists. But even so, Marlebone was underwhelming at best. Had she had more time, she might have noticed the cheese shop, and maybe this would have helped rehabilitate her image of the station. As, and let's be honest here, any public transport with a personal purveyor of exquisite dairy products is pretty fucking superb. But, crucially, Louise didn't have time. She was running incredibly late. And running was exactly what she was doing. Running to the ticket machine in order to run to the train and run away from her life. As she fumbled with the self-service, Louise consoled herself that the lateness wasn't her fault. 
Obviously, TfL had had their role, but the other key player was her DNA. You see, Louise suffered from a genetic predisposition for lateness. Her family had a long and storied history of almost unprecedented unpunctuality. And there could be no doubt that Louise had inherited this late gene. As a baby, she'd arrived nearly a fortnight after her due date and had taken a full 36 hours of labour before finally deciding to pop out and face the real world. A decision that, with hindsight, Louise regretted. She liked to think that like Hugh Grant in Four Weddings and a Funeral, there was a greatness to her lateness, a certain ditzy charm. Not to mention that being late wasn't always impractical. The best way to catch a train is to miss the one before it. The difficulty with that theory, though, was the rather unavoidable fact that, if Louise missed this train, there wasn't another one. It was the last of the night. And Louise was sprinting for it with all her might, for that train would take her to her parents' house and away from her boyfriend, Jack. Now, Louise wasn't running away from Jack because he was abusive or a drunkard or anything like that. No, Jack was fine. More than fine, really. He was great, bordering almost on a clichéd perfection that most girls she knew dreamed of. Firstly, and there was no way around this, he was very pretty to look at. Louise knew this was shallow and a poor metric by which to judge a life partner's potential suitability, but there it was. He was an undeniable hottie, and any offspring they had would benefit from his impeccable good looks, and they too would become hotties. Of course, this was a vapid and unimportant thing, really, but if Louise was being completely honest with herself, she didn't want an ugly child, and she hated herself for thinking it, but secretly loved the idea of a picture-perfect family, idyllic cutouts from a Ralph Lauren kids' catalogue, where happiness was only ever a branded cable-knit jumper away. And Jack was, ostensibly, capable of providing that. Indeed, when she had first met him at a housewarming party hosted by friends, she had actually dismissed him as being too catalogue-like. She'd thought him a generic kind of handsome, bland almost, with his strong jawline, blue eyes and an upsettingly sensible haircut. She sort of assumed he'd be like so many of the other guys who looked like him. Boring. Tomcats to whom the cream had always come easy. Not like, say, the unorthodox attractiveness of lightly bearded men with shaved heads. Uh, They were always interesting and hilarious, Louise thought to herself, which was nice of her. However, all of those preconceptions had flooded away the instant he spoke to her, when suddenly, having his strong jawline, blue eyes, and that ever-so-sensible haircut focused entirely on her, had given her the kind of butterfly-fluttering stomach she had almost forgotten how to feel. He'd shone like a sexy nightlight, chasing away the ghosts and monsters of boyfriend's past that, at that time, had very much haunted the bedroom of her mind. And it turned out he wasn't boring. He was an interesting, kind, sweet and charming man. And for reasons she still hadn't fully discerned, he'd fallen madly and completely in love with Louise. Not directly at that party, though. There they had just had what Louise described to friends as a cheeky snog. The falling in love part had happened over the subsequent summer months. A whirling montage of picnics and candlelit dinners and Sunday lines and avocado breakfasts that were delicious but also had a slight aftertaste of when the fuck did we become these people? Their lives were a technical dreamscape of happiness and shared joy. The kind of bullshit Louise had once scoffed at on Instagram. Summer had given way to autumn leaves, bonfires and then Christmas carols, which in turn became weekend city breaks and goodbye kisses in the rain. And onwards and onwards, this cycle of romantic tropes and hashtag relationship goals had continued. 
until one day Jack had suggested they start thinking about moving to the next level and get a place together, maybe even a puppy. And Louise's mouth had said, <laughs> well, that sounds lovely. And all the while her brain had said, run from this place and never return. So she'd run from that place with no plan to return, heading for the hills and home on the 2347 from London Marlebone. Except it was now 2346, and Louise feared she was definitely too late as she greedily grabbed her ticket and surged towards the platform. She couldn't precisely say why she'd so instantly decided to run. She loved Jack. That much was undoubtedly true. Maybe it was because she'd been here before. The dancing and laughing and dating and mating. She knew the tropes because she'd lived them. And she knew that what followed was inevitably pain. She dreaded the day that the local park where she and Jack once sat drinking wine and trying badly to name the stars would cease being a treasured memory of shared astronomical ignorance and instead become an agonising reminder of something now dead. Those spectres always loomed for Louise. Every moment together, some part of her wondered when Jack would stop being the sexy nightlight and, in plunging her world back into darkness, would join the ghost of heartbreak that had haunted her. She feared he'd grow bored of her, or become unattracted to her, or, even more likely in her mind, was that he'd have the sudden realisation that he never had been. That one day the scales would drop from his eyes, and, instead of the cocktail party goddess with the immaculate hair, who enjoyed going to the latest exhibitions and holding witty conversation about theatre, he would see the real her. Sitting in Primark pyjama bottoms and an oversized hoodie, shouting obscenities at reruns of the Gilmore Girls on Netflix, while smashing a tub of ice cream and gently farting. And, in the moments like that, the love he felt for her would slowly leak away, just like the noxious gases leaking from her person. That was why she'd run. Because she didn't want to reach that moment, that inevitable, heart-wrenching, stomach-punching, utterly soul-crushing moment when it was all over. When it was too late. And spurred on by these fears and fantasies, she flung herself onto the platform, just in time to see the train door shutting and the train pulling away. She kept running, desperate to make it. She shouted something inaudible and insane, as if the driver would hear her and stop. She gesticulated wildly at a passenger inside, though what she expected them to do wasn't clear even to Louise. The passenger was an old lady, travelling alone. And for a second, Louise's reflection merged with the woman and they became one. An echo across time of what Louise risked becoming if she kept trying to run. Louise stopped and stood silently watching the train depart. Jogging up alongside her was another stranded soul. A young-looking guy with a floppy fringe and high cheekbones. We're too late. Too fucking late, said Louise. Panting, the boy replied, Not necessarily. And while Louise appreciated his optimism, that was a verifiably inaccurate statement. At least as far as it pertained to trains. But maybe... Just maybe he was right about something. Maybe it wasn't too late. She could go to Jack and tell him. Tell him she was scared but she loved him. Tell him how much he meant to her and how much she didn't want to lose him. How maybe, just maybe, they could take things a little slower. After all, Louise was always late. So she'd need a little time to catch him up. <laughs> she laughed. <laughs> God, you're right, she exclaimed to the boy, who was now looking a little startled. 
aware she was acting a bit batshit already, she decided to go all out on the crazy scale. She put both hands on his shoulders and stared into his eyes. <laughs> it's never too late to let love in, she said, still laughing. The boy narrowed his eyes and said, uh, Look, I don't know what you think is happening here, but I, I feel like you've misread this situation quite severely. Louise chuckled again and picked up her suitcase. <laughs> don't worry, she said. You just did me a favour, is all, even though you don't realise. So thank you. And take care of yourself. And with that, Louise Marigold, bedraggled and burdened with heavy baggage but a light heart, headed back to get the tube to see Jack. He lived in Bethnal Green, on the central line. Blood red. The colour of love and passion. She just hoped she'd get there, on time. Please don't stand too near the edge Cause I worry that your poise isn't what it ought to be And if you won't do it for yourself, do it for me I hear the voices They're ringing out The tannoy is in our minds Why is it that they always shout Set me free Oh, set me free Not all climbs are as easy as these So I'll take them two at a time Cause I'm so eager to please And if eventually I should reach the top I'm sure I'll still freeze I'm sure I'll still freeze Please don't stand too near the end Cause I worry that your point isn't what it all to be And if you won't do it and do it for yourself and do it for
Hello, Christine. It's just me, Charles. I'm, um, well, just phony because I'm here at the station and I couldn't help but notice that, well, uh, you're not. Your train came through about ten minutes ago, though, which I suppose is the source of my confusion. <laughs> I've run through a number of scenarios in my head and while I'm mildly concerned you've been murdered aboard the train by every other passenger in the vein of the Orient Express... I suspect that possibly you simply missed your train and will just be along later. I certainly hope so. Quite apart from anything else, I don't think the police would appreciate me reporting a crime of that nature with no evidence. In any case, I'll be waiting, so just let me know. I feel that after so many years of waiting for you, an extra half hour or so won't hurt. See you soon. A Good Service and All of the Lines is recorded at the Abbey Road Institute. It's written and performed by David Head and Matt Glover. Produced by Carlos Brissio, David Head and Matt Glover. Sound, engineering and mixing by Carlos Brissio. Cello and backing vocals performed by Dom Main. Additional vocal talent is provided by Claire Reedy, Michael Rossi and Susie Jacobson. If you've enjoyed it, please leave us a good review. You can find us on all social media platforms at The David and Matt. This podcast is supported with public funds from Arts Council England. Thank you for listening.